So uh, Janina, you've been doing a lot of work on trauma throughout your career. And uh, today we're going to be talking about that, um, what you do with trauma. Yes, you know, I've been, I've been working with trauma since 1991 in sort of the, in kind of the caveman era of the trauma treatment world when literally we were inventing the wheel. We didn't know how to treat trauma. Um, our best guess was that we should use the talking cure uh, because that's what we knew back in the 90s. And, uh, but we kept running into the fact that for traumatized individuals, talking about what happened uh, didn't always lead to resolution or relief. It often led to reliving. And I can remember, still remember the days when if any of us came up with something that worked for our trauma patients, uh, it became a part of what was trauma treatment. So we were just kind of winging it. And uh, it's a very different world now where there are very clear-cut approaches often in a bit of competition with each other. Yeah. But what, what has always made sense to me, maybe because of those early years in the trauma field, was to integrate approaches rather than to use an approach with every with every single patient. I like the idea of, of bringing models together. Yeah. And, and I've always had a problem with the, the central idea in trauma treatment, which, were, which has been forever and ever, it has been this idea that in order to be free of the past, the patient has to go back into the trauma. And, uh, and that's disturbed me, I think, just, uh, just kind of in terms of the fairness. It just never seemed fair that the treatment for unbearable, intolerable experiences should be to relive and feel again unbearable emotions. So uh, so I, I've been exploring all through my career, how do we find um, gentle, um, nourishing forms of trauma treatment rather than intense and painful forms of trauma treatment? Yeah, yeah. So maybe that's a good, uh, it's a good way to put uh, what we're talking about in perspective, uh, to see that in a relatively short amount of time, so much has happened to change the field. Um, and um, uh, that, uh, you know, one of the things that you got from that is a sense of doing something that is going to be personalized is going to be paying attention to the specific situation instead of having one model, but more than anything else, um, to not re-traumatize clients that treatment does not mean reliving the horror. Uh, 
Right. And Rachel Yehuda uh, said something at a conference probably 15 years ago that stopped the audience. You know, you could hear the hush in the room. She was standing in front of probably six, 700 people uh, at Bessel van der Kolk's annual trauma conference. And she looked out at the audience and she said, what does it mean to treat a trauma? Does it mean that we treat the events or does it mean that we treat the shame, the sense of defectiveness, the hopelessness? And, and there was this hush when she said, does it mean treating the events? I think the hush was everyone in the room saying, oh my God, we've been treating the events. We haven't, assuming the low self-esteem, the shame, the loneliness, the sense of defectiveness would resolve if we helped people to treat the events. So I'm always looking for approaches that don't treat events. Um, EMDR actually is a technique, is an approach that doesn't treat the events uh, because it asks the therapist to break the event down into an image, into beliefs, into feelings and body sensation. The somatic therapies, sensory motor psychotherapy in particular, uh, has also brought a very new approach to trauma treatment. Two treats the body sensations, the emotions, the beliefs, and movement impulses, um, rather than events. And and then probably, and then I'm very, I've always been a longtime fan of uh, internal family systems, and uh, and and have often integrated sensory motor psychotherapy and internal family systems. And then I would guess probably five years ago, I, I was thinking one day about this word healing. We talk about trauma healing. And I thought to myself, well, healing is not what people feel when they process traumatic memories. They feel exhausted. They may feel a sense of, Relief, I got through it, but they don't feel healed. And then, and then I had a, a, an epiphany. I thought, no, the moment that we feel healed is the moment that we accept ourselves. We forgive ourselves. We extend compassion to ourselves. And uh, even, God forbid, love ourselves and and then I began to think, okay, how do we help our patients to get there? How do we help them get to that place where they feel a kind of loving attunement with themselves? Yeah. Um, so, so what you're talking about is a sense of um, paying attention that you know we're not trying to treat the event. Um, we're trying to help the client manage their lives. 
And uh, so uh, ultimately, um, you ask yourself, what would it look like if the client were healed? And um, focus on what it is that's going to help the client function in that healthy way that the trauma has interrupted or made difficult to achieve. Absolutely. And, and for, you know, so let's say five years ago would have been roughly 2013. Um, I had spent my entire career since the early 90s helping people to reclaim their lives, to function better, to be able to have healthy relationships um, despite the trauma. And when I had this epiphany, it was going a step further. It was saying, because I heard from so many of my long-term patients, they said, you know, I have a life now. I have meaningful relationships. I have work that I love. But I don't enjoy it. I don't feel, I don't feel a sense of nourishment or satisfaction or joy. And so I was thinking, okay, we've got to restore people's lives to them. And then we have to restore them to themselves so that they feel a sense of, of what's the word? So they feel a sense of self-compassion, self-acceptance, and self-love that mimics the experience of secure attachment in childhood. And as you know, probably better than than most therapists, um, one of the amazing things about the human brain and body is that we can imagine experiences we've never had and our bodies respond to what we imagine. So that if I, my idea was, if I could help people uh, come to, to love and accept the child they once were, and they could feel those somatic feelings of love, warmth, relaxation, closeness, that it would heal the attachment wounds that are part and parcel of trauma. Mm -hmm. So that wasn't a very ambitious goal, was it? (laughs) (laughs) But it's a a very, very powerful goal of, um, uh, you know, being driven by the end result. Um, And, um, you know, which is a very big paradigm shift that in lots of ways, um, you know, the psychotherapy has been driven to with the model of repair and mm-hmm. something is, uh, is broken or something is not functioning, repairing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and what you're talking about is to say, uh, if we actually um, kind of, of experience acceptance, self-compassion um, from that place It's not an empty word, but we can actually feel it, experience it uh, in a deeply felt way. Uh, Then it actually drives us uh, to that place of healing. And uh, it takes care 
of the wound. Right, exactly. And, and you know, as, as you know, as I'm sure all our listeners know, compassion feels good. So if I have compassion for a baby, a puppy, a bird, a, you know, any living creature, a plant, if I have compassion for that living creature, it feels warm. It feels moving. And, and, and those are good feelings. And so what I wanted was to cultivate those emotional states in traumatized clients. So I, I set about it by using my two probably preferred modalities at trauma treatment, sensory motor psychotherapy and internal family systems. Um, because I, I wanted, I wanted the somatic component because it's, it's not enough to say, I feel for this, this hurt child inside me. We have to feel that compassion in our bodies. And we have, and if we have a traumatized body and a traumatized nervous system, it may be difficult to experience compassion for others. It may be difficult to experience compassion for ourselves. So I wanted the body piece in there, but I, I, you don't, I don't know if this has been your experience, but my experience over 37 years of practice is that if I say to my patient, it's important that we work on self-compassion, most of my patients would have said, don't ask me to do that. That's disgusting. <laughs> what a terrible thought. Very, <laughs> yeah. you know, they have very little interest in self-compassion. Um, but if or, I, or they believe it's empty words and it's a cop out, or um, you know, or they don't know how to do it. Exactly, exactly, and and not knowing how to do it works for me because I'm a teacher at heart, and so I'm happy to teach people how to have self compassion. But my experience has been that self compassion can more easily be evoked when I ask the patient to have compassion for that little girl or little boy he or she once was. And so I brought in internal family systems because internal family systems is one of the best clinical models to help people really gain a direct emotional connection to their young selves. So I wanted the body in there and I wanted a way to help people relate to young, fragmented, uh, wounded selves. Yeah, yeah. So, so the key is that in a very general way, self-compassion to yourself is difficult, but to that part, which is the little child, the hurt child um, is much easier to experience. 
Absolutely, absolutely. And and again, it not it's not it's not always smooth sailing because part and parcel of trauma is a kind of self rejection and self alienation that has very powerful enduring effects. So so that my experience has been that that my patients have have really disown have disowned the trauma in many cases, right? And you've certainly, I'm sure, heard heard those words. Oh, it wasn't that bad. A lot of people have it much worse. Uh, so there there is a way that survival requires minimizing, denying, or disowning the trauma. And then when it comes time for the recovery and healing process, we have to own it, uh, except that the habits of survival have resulted in a very profound alienation from what has happened from the child selves to whom it happened. And, uh, and often that self-alienation is, is sort of dug in, is cemented in, by habits of self-rejection, self-hatred, uh, self-judgment, etc., and I'm sure you're very familiar with those patients as well. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. But so the the reminder you bring in is that um, um, we're dealing with self-alienation, so that it's difficult um, to be there. Uh, to be fully present in it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And to be fully present to the whole, the entirety of our experience. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm thinking of patients, for example, um, who characteristically, um, whatever the stress or, or difficulty in their lives, automatically default to self-blame. Well, it's my fault that people behave badly. It's my fault that such and such has happened. Um, Or patients who default to anger, it's their fault. They put me in this position. Uh, So we develop different ways of self-alienation that help us to survive in the moment in particular environments. Um, You know, it's interesting because I'm thinking of a particular patient in whose early environment, the only acceptable feeling was anger, which is different for most families because the majority of my patients over the years have come from families where shame is the only acceptable emotion. They couldn't afford to cry. They couldn't afford to show anger. But they could afford to hang their heads and and look ashamed. So those habits persist. And so my, my angry patient had to disown the, the frightened child, the ashamed child. She had to disown the part of her that was deeply, deeply sad 
that nobody cared. And, uh, and the only part of herself that she could own, could identify with, was this very angry part. Um, similarly, the self-blame, the self-blame patients, I'm thinking of somebody in particular, who I remember, who I saw years ago, she came in one day, it was during the Gulf War, and she said, I know you're going to think I'm crazy, but I think I caused the Gulf War. So her sense of self-blame and responsibility, she's, and she said, I'll tell you something more. I listen to the evening news at night, and if there's a car accident or some terrible thing has happened, I blame myself. Mm. And that's so she had disowned the parts of her that were energetic, that were angry, that were that actually had um, had dreams and strivings. All those parts of herself she disowned, and the only part of herself she could own was this guilty, ashamed part that felt responsible for the world's ills as well as all of her own. Yeah. So I just want to comment that um, I really appreciate the way you have described, disowned in a very um, down-to-earth way of showing how many parts are actually disowned and what's left um, is something that obviously is a much, much reduced version of what the human being is um, and has to carry the uh, whole um, functions for life. Absolutely. So it's like a a little child carrying this huge, uh, you know, carrying the world for the client. And, And then... We as therapists see these patients years and years and years later, and we wonder why is it that this patient can't access any grief? Why is it this patient can't access any any emotion other than shame, anger, or fear, which are the three most common? So, so I set about creating a an integrated model that would allow people to to notice oh and and the other requirement that this model had to have was that it be mindfulness based because all of the all of the most how can i put it all of the models that patience endures. And I think we forget sometimes, we, we have all this fear over evidence-based treatment now, but we forget at the end of the day, the patient has to like the treatment we're offering. Otherwise, the patient is going to go somewhere else. And, uh, and we, so we can't push models on patients that patients don't endorse. Patients endorse EMDR. They endorse internal family systems. They endorse sensory motor psychotherapy. They come back. They enter into the treatment. And and these are all mindfulness-based models. Yeah, yeah. and so so that's uh, uh, something which requires the client's active participation 
um, but also prevent the client from walking away. Right. And I think the mindfulness-based approaches have a an inherent uh, gentleness in them that, you know, because it's scary. If you're a trauma survivor, it's scary to be asked to enter into treatments that are very intense without any components that regulate and soothe that intensity. So, and, and EMDR doesn't actually require the client to be actively mindful, which is one of its benefits. It just requires the client be willing to follow direction, essentially. Um, so those are my requirements. It had to be mindfulness-based. It had to have a somatic component, and it had to have a parts component. And, uh, and you know, it's, it's been lovely to, to develop this approach and to write about it. And, uh, and probably the most wonderful feedback I get is directly from patients or from trauma survivors, whether they're, they're patients or not. Every week I get emails from people saying, I read your book and it explained me to myself. I understood why therapists have felt frustrated with me, friends have felt frustrated with me, why I've been so stuck. Uh, and I thank you so much for writing it and uh, giving me hope, which is just the really the best compliment I could have. It's been wonderful. Because I wrote the book with the idea of creating a guide for the therapist, but I also wanted it to be readable for patients because I believe that so much of the healing process has to be um, it has to be um, the patient's activity. If, if you're a trauma survivor and it feels as if your recovery and healing was the work of your therapist, you're still not free. It, what I want is for people to feel their own capacity for healing. Yeah, yeah. And to, for us to be the facilitators of that healing process. But uh, from overwhelm and um, uh, to finding a sense of agency is part of right. the healing and Absolutely. the vehicle for the healing. Yes. Yeah. So when we've lost our sense of agency, as in traumatic experiences, it's important to me that we, that we, part of the recovery be the the recovering of the sense of agency. That's a nice way to say it. Yes, I like that. <laughs> so I don't know if, if it would be helpful to, to give you an example of, of, how, of how it works. Yeah, yeah, I think that would be great. Because, uh, because you know, regardless of our models, and, uh, and I, I certainly as somebody who was psychodynamically trained and supervised by analysts, I'm, you know, I, my, my 
experience of different models ranges from the very traditional to to very cutting edge models. Um, so here's an example. Um, the the patient is a 50 year old uh, psychotherapist, male, and he comes into the session. And like most of our patients, he starts off with an issue. Uh, he says, "I want to work on my on my germophobia." He says, "You know, it's it's cold seasons coming up, and my wife and kids are ready to kill me." because I've become so, so OCD about germs and uh, bacteria and not touching doorknobs and, uh, and avoiding places where people are sniffling or coughing. And, uh, and so I ask him to, to just notice um, those that fearfulness. And he said, it was actually difficult, he said, to come to your office today because I know that there are patients in and out of your building all day long and maybe they have colds and maybe they're coming down with the flu. (laughs) He said, I had to use my handkerchief to open the door to your suite. Uh, So I said, "Can can you contact that part of you that has such a fear of germs. And he said, absolutely, I can feel the anxiety about all the doorknobs I touched right now. And then I asked him to to notice that fear of the germs. And And I asked him if there was an age that went with that fear of germs. And immediately he said, yes, seven years old. And then he said, yes, I can feel this part of me that's afraid of germs is just seven years old. And then I asked him, uh, you know, so if you're asking a parts question is internal family systems. Then I ask a sensory motor question. I say, is there an image or memory that goes with his fear of germs. And immediately my patient says, oh, yes, I can see. I'm in my third grade classroom, and my teacher is showing an educational video on germs. (laughs) Mm. And and you probably are of the generation that remembers those very grainy black and white educational films. I remember we used to have them <laughs> on fire drills and, you know, safety from Russian bombs uh, back in the 50s. And, uh, <clears throat> and he says, yes, he said, I can see the video. And, and he says, every time, the voice in the video says germ, there's a red splat on the screen. Mm. So so he says, there's a red splat on the doorknob. And then somebody sneezes and there's a red splat on the screen. And he said, I can feel that little boy 
getting more and more freaked out because every time there's a red flap, flap, (laughs) every time there's a red splotch, the voice says danger. And then another red splotch and the voiceover says danger. And, and he said, I can feel the panic. Uh, and, and, and then I say, well, of course, because that little seven-year-old only knew danger that meant he was going to be killed or one of his brothers was going to be killed. Um, how scary for him. Yeah, it's, it's a danger, but not a way to deal with it. Right. Danger in my patient's family meant beating, sexual abuse, uh, or observing one of his brothers being physically or sexually abused, because the the entire family was a a scene of violence. So, you know, as I could imagine, a child with secure attachment watching that video, thinking I better watch out for germs. But the child from the traumatic environment heard the word danger and associated his kind of danger. So that it became terrifying. Uh, And so, but again, in, in modern trauma treatment, We don't work in the past tense. We don't work with what happened at age seven. We work with the present moment experience of that seven-year-old. And uh, so so I asked my patient, where do you feel his fear in your body? And he said, I, you know, my heart is pounding. I feel, I feel tight all over. And then and then in, in this approach, the key is the relationship between the grown-up my patient is today and this little seven-year-old who's still stuck in a time warp in which danger is not just from human beings, but also from germs. And so I encourage my patient to begin to make a relationship with this little boy. And, uh, and, and he, and he asked the little boy, what are you? Just, uh, just uh, what's happening is um, the danger of germs um, actually activated the sense of other dangers, that it became part of the kid living in a dangerous world in so many different ways that he didn't know how to deal with. And in treatment, instead of dealing with the events, um, you're focusing on the relationship of the current adult with the little boy who had to face these dangers. And so um, we're shifting from a sense of trauma treatment is about dealing with the trauma, quote-unquote, to uh, trauma treatment is about dealing with the relationship of the current person with the person who experienced the trauma and did not have the means to deal with it. Right. 
Right. And, and also one other thing that I think is very central to this story. Um, Peter Levine talks about it and Pat Ogden both talk about it, that there is a tendency in trauma for non-threatening stimuli to get over-associated with traumatic stimuli. And, and that's the, the term that's used, over-associated or, or over-coupled, so that the, the germ film got over-associated with the danger this little boy faced, so that the germs felt as threatening as the father who seemed to want to kill him. And, uh, and so I asked my client to ask the little boy what he's worried about if, if, if my patient touches a doorknob or is too close to a sneeze. And, and the little boy says, danger. And, and, you know, here's the amazing thing. You know, these inner dialogues are very easy for patients. All I do is I say, ask that little boy inside you, ask that little seven-year-old what he's afraid of if he touches a doorknob or he's too close to a sneeze. And, and my patients hear the words or the voice inside. So, so, so my patient, uh, I'll, I'll call him, I'll call him uh, David. So David says, uh, he's telling me that touching a doorknob is dangerous. And, and uh, so then I say, well, ask him what he's worried about if he does something dangerous. And the little boy says, I'm afraid I'm going to die. So there's the traumatic fear encapsulated. Again, David is a 50-year-old psychologist, years of therapy, years of work processing the traumatic memories. But he still has this seven-year-old holding the fear of germs in his mind and body. And, uh, and so when we get to a core fear, like I'm going to be killed or I'm going to be abandoned, then I ask the patient to ask the child part, what does the child part need right here, right now, to not be so afraid of of dying or being killed. And the child part says, I need you to watch out for danger. And so all these years, David has been trying to allay his phobia of germs. He's been trying to talk himself out of this phobia of germs, as have his friends and family. The little boy is saying, for me to be reassured, you have to be even more hypervigilant about germs. Yes, but that's a but that's an enormous shift. Uh, it might seem like um, a paradox, but actually, what you have happened, what has happened through that relationship, 
between the child and the adult um, is that the child owns the original fear um, and the adult no longer has to mask it, but now is focused on reassuring the child instead of pretending that there's no problem. And so that's, that's what you've done by shifting the focus to the relationship between the child and the adult. Absolutely. That's a beautiful way of putting it. Thank you for that. And so then I, I introduce a, an intervention from sensory motor psychotherapy. And I say to David, okay, would you be willing to show this little boy that you're willing to be very, 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 very vigilant? And he says, sure. And, uh, and I ask him to, to look very carefully all around the office and, and make sure that he looks for every possible form of danger from surfaces that could have germs to scary people, uh, anything that looks alarming to this little boy. And so, so David, again, thinking, you know, in his mind, he was helping the seven-year-old by doing this, not helping himself. So he looks very, 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 very carefully around the whole room. And then he says to the little boy, how was that? And the little boy says, not careful enough. <laughs> you know, like all children. <laughs> so I say, okay. The important thing is you're listening to him. So tell him you're going to try again and you want him to see if you're careful enough. So we slow it down more and he really tries to take in every detail of every inch of this, of my office. And then he says to the little boy, how's that? (laughs) The little boy says, better. And so, uh, and so then he says to the little boy, you've been working so hard to watch out for danger. Um, and would you trust me to look out for you? Uh, and, then, and I think the little boy said something to him, which was just so beautiful. The little boy said, you know, don't just tell me that you'll be there for me. You have to protect me. Yeah. Which, right? And so, and so David says, okay, let me, let me look around again and, uh, and, I'll, and I'll show you how protective I can be. And so he looks very, very carefully at every surface, everything in the room. And then he says, um, if, if I'm that careful, um, could, you, could you trust me to watch out for you? And the little boy, and then suddenly he yawns. And he says, I'm starting to feel so sleepy. Mm. And, and then he had an image that, of this little boy sitting on his lap and just relaxing into his arms. 
And, uh, and then tears came up. Um, and I encouraged him to stay with this feeling of the little boy's body on his lap, relaxing against his chest. Was it, was it uh, holding a pillow or was just holding with the arms? Just to, yeah. that he had that sense? He was, he was able, you know, sometimes people have to hold a pillow, but, but, uh, but David, maybe because he's a parent himself, just imagine the, imaginatively held the child and uh, and it helped that he was starting to feel so relaxed and sleepy <laughs> he said I you know and he's yawning he said I don't know what's the matter with me I said well maybe he's relaxing and then and then he and the little boy um just sort of relaxed into each other and uh and he said it feels so good to feel him in my arms. And then I said, and ask him what it's like for him to hear you say that it feels good. And uh, and, and the little boy said, it feels good. I don't know if I trust it. Mm-hmm. It's something that often these child parts say, it feels really good, but I don't know if I trust it. And uh, and David, without any coaching from me, just said back to him, it's okay. You don't have to trust me. I'm going to keep doing it anyway. And, uh, and, and, you know, this moment between them was a moment in which David and this little child part could feel what it might have been like to experience secure attachment as a child. Yeah, yeah. What it would have been like to have um, adults in his life who were looking out for him instead of doing terrible stuff to him or terrorizing him like the school was doing without giving him uh, protection. Absolutely, absolutely. And the fact that, that David and I responded to the child part's need for protection, not just for um, connection, because Mm -hmm. protection and connection go together. But often for traumatized children, protection is a higher order priority. And, uh, and so they, the rest of the session was just, uh, just, you know, some tears coming up, what I call the grief of relief. This sense of, at long last, I'm feeling something I've been waiting for. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's different from the grief of, the tears of pain. The grief of relief feels very, very healing when we experience it. Yeah. And, um, and that that was really the end of the germ phobia Mm -hmm. it it really reorganized that whole experience in which normal you know normal mini threats like germs became over associated with huge traumatic events yeah yeah so it's all about helping people to 
make contact not with the event, but with the child part that still holds what we call the implicit or feeling memories Mm -hmm. of early experience. And, you know, Basil Vanderkolk did a study back in, I think, 2001 um, of, of individuals who'd woken up in the middle of anesthesia, in the middle of surgery, um, out of anesthesia. Very, you can imagine, a very traumatic experience. I, I try not to think about it too much because it's, it's, it sounds absolutely horrific. But he did a really interesting study in which he compared two groups of these patients. One group who had a, a narrative, who'd been able to put words to the experience. And the other group consisted of subjects who had not been able to put words to the experience. They could say it was horrific, but they couldn't say, you know, I went to the hospital that day and this is what happened and this is what happened. And then he looked at the symptoms of both groups. And what he found was that the symptoms were equally severe in both groups. Challenged the prevailing belief back in the 90s and early 2000s that putting what happened into words would resolve the symptoms. Mm -hmm. So those symptoms that persisted despite a verbal narrative are what we call implicit memory, which is emotional memory, body memory, tactile, olfactory, etc. And those are the components of traumatic experience that often don't get resolved unless we have ways of, of specifically getting at those implicit memories. The germophobia was an implicit memory of that yeah. seven-year-old little boy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a beautiful, beautiful case. Yeah. Yes, yeah. And there's so many, many beautiful, beautiful cases. Um, it's really, it's so powerful. And what's beautiful about it is that, is that none of the none of the steps takes much. Um, um, what's the word? It doesn't. I don't get resistance mm-hmm. from people. It doesn't. Each step is so simple and non-threatening that there's very little uh, and so I want to, to highlight that actually the way you're telling the story has that affect of that proceeding very gently um, with the expectation of not you know encountering resistance or without the expectation of having to brace for encountering resistance. So the, in a way, the way you're telling the story reflects the attitude uh, that you have as a therapist and that is transmitted to the client for his own dialogue, you know, and so there's kind of a, the, the transmission of that attitude in the client's own inquiry vis-a-vis the child part um, that is very gentle and uh, based on that sense of um, 
curiosity and gentle acceptance as opposed to forcing through. Yeah, that's wonderful. That's such a good reminder that, uh, that you know, that we're the instruments here and that how we, how we, not just our words, but how we say them makes mm-hmm. such a difference. Um, and, I, you know, it's very interesting that I'm sure internal family systems therapists uh, recognize this too, how little, how infrequently patients question the use of parts language. Once in a while, um, I'll have people who say, you know, why are you talking about parts? You know, I'm not civil. <laughs> and, uh, but for the most part, I think human beings are aware that we have different aspects or parts of ourselves. We're aware of internal conflicts. Also, there's a context. So if we were to ask people to do an essay on whether or not they have parts, you might, you know, create the objection. But here, what's happening is in the therapy session, you're kind of gently leading them on a path of exploration. And it becomes, um, oh, what if, and follow that, as opposed to necessarily um, questioning. So suspend disbelief, like when you're watching a movie and you see what happens next. Right, right, yeah, yes. And I actually explicitly um, ask, ask the clients, um, I'm trying to think about the context here, um, I, I don't do it necessarily right away, but but at some point, um, usually, if if the if the patient has is questioning this parts language or is having difficulty um, recognizing that certain emotions are are communications from parts, I will ask them: Would you be willing? for the purposes of this therapy, to assume that every distressing feeling, thought, or physical sensation is a communication from a part. So, and I say, you don't have to believe it. I'm not asking you to believe it. I'm asking, would you be willing for the purposes of this therapy to assume that every distressing thought, feeling, or physical reaction is a communication from a part. And so I get a certain amount of buy-in, and there's a chance right then to address any any fears or, or negative reactions. Yeah, yeah. Because that's an idea that comes from sensory motor psychotherapy, that that the collaboration is paramount and that we need to ask our patients, would you be willing to see what happens if we try this? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it really does promote um, much less resistance and much more um, collaboration. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this feels like it might be a good place to end. Just want to check if you have something else you might want to add or if we stop here.
Well, I, I realized that what the one thing I should add is to uh, is to to tell you the title of the book. It's yeah. called "Healing the Fragmented Selves of Trauma Survivors," uh, and uh, the subtitle is "Overcoming Self Alienation." This is part of the Active Pause podcast. To see more and subscribe to the newsletter, go to activepause.com.